Hello, Uniquely Milwaukee listeners. Get ready for a real special treat. Last week, we were privileged to hear powerful monologues from the Milwaukee reps, the Heart Sellers, in honor of AAPI Month. Those stories were filled with hope and resilience as they shared the experience of Asian immigrants from the 1960s and 1970s. But today, we have a special guest with us who also happens to be a valued member of Radio Milwaukee as our financial director, Liana Hendricott who was born and raised during that time and has a unique perspective to share. Yeah. You know, so I live in a place where I can vote. I also live in a place where I can protest Mm -hmm. without the guerrillas and the military, you know, trying to stifle my voice as a human being, not even just as a woman. Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of sitting down with her and we talked about her mother Pat's journey to coming to America from the Philippines, Liana's own experiences growing up as one of the few people of color in Iowa in the 70s, and her identity as an Asian American. You're not going to want to miss this one. This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. Lena, thank you so much for joining me today. This thank has you. been a few weeks in the making, and I'm so excited that we're here today to talk a little bit about you. I actually don't know much about you, so I'm excited to get in the blast of the past and to learn what makes you who you are. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Of course. <laughs> um, this is really exciting, and when we talked about it initially, I was nervous because I didn't think Mm -hmm. it would be that interesting. But the truth of the matter is anybody raised in a non-traditional household has had an interesting life. So thank you. Thanks for having me. So my name is Leanna Hendercott. I was born in Olongapo City, Philippines. And I'm not ashamed to say it. It was 56 years ago. And um, I think that I wouldn't probably normally bring it up in this kind of context, except for the fact that I think down the road in our conversation, it'll lend itself to, you know, the types of opportunities that Mm -hmm. women in the Philippines had at the time that even my mom was there. I came to the United States with my mom and my dad. So uh, my mom, she got pregnant with me probably at 17 or 18 years old. And at that time, and again, that's why I think the context of the timeline hopefully uh, might make a little sense, but she uh, had to move away from her family because she was unwed. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't like she was asked to. It was her responsibility not to shame the family. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to put on somebody. So she moved from Alangapo City to Manila where she had an aunt who could help her you know, uh, get through the birthing process and and that sort of thing with me. And I don't know what the plan was after that. I don't know that there was. So she moved to Manila. My mom moved to Manila by herself as a 17 or 18 year old pregnant girl Mm. and ended up working as a barmaid because it's respectable. So in Alangapo City, she, my mom always said, don't tell everybody where you're from. And I kept telling her, nobody knows what that means here. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it is a really, really bad area, at least at that time, where, you know, her options would be to be a prostitute, Mm -hmm. to, you know, be a maid where you're working some really, really hard hours, regardless of your physical condition. And um, I mean, that was it. There was no marrying up. 
There was wow. no education. In fact, my mom had to drop out of school in eighth grade to sell bananas on the corner to help support the family. And the people in your community, they are what you have in your world because mm-hmm. there's no way out. Yeah. So when she uh, moved to Manila and she had me, my father was a Marine. He was 18 and uh, was quite smitten. He's white. Okay. So for lack of a better term, but sort of like that German stock, tall, light hair, light eyes, you know, stronger features. And um, he saw my mom and knew that he was going to be punching above his weight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Did he they met meet her. at work or her job at the bar? No, at the bar. Yeah. At the bar. So she was like, you know, he's nice to me. But yeah. her standard was, you know, because I said, my dad knew he immediately he wanted right. to marry her. And my That's mom. So my mom, she, I said, did you just love him? And he, she said, no, I thought he was skinny and ugly. And I thought that was so mean at the time. But she said, he didn't beat me. What's that? Why is that your minimum standard? But it was. It yeah. was. And understandably so. At that point, she's got me and nothing to fall back on. Not like in the States where you right. would have yeah. some assistance. So she married him. And we moved to the States. And at that time, my last name was Mendoza. Mm. And uh, when we moved to the States, at that point, my dad was 19. And he brought a wife and a child that wasn't his 56 years ago back. And like so many American military people did. And at Um, 18 as well, too. At 18. And so I asked my grandma. And we, I was raised in Danport, Iowa. I asked my grandma, so what did you say? Yeah. Like, how would, how did that's, that go? That's a shock. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Like I would, you think you would murder your child, right? Mm-hmm. So I asked her and she said, oh, I just saw you and I loved you. And I was like, that's not right. That's not true. <laughs> so anyway, You're giving me the PG version thank you. of that. <laughs> thank you for saying that, but that's not true. And we both know that. So I asked grandpa and he said, Ah, she was fine. You know, I saw you and I loved you and I believe that. Yeah. But grandpa's the grandpa and he's not a mother. I had to go around and ask a bunch of aunts and uncles until finally an uncle said, oh, she was madder than a hornet. And I was like, that's more like it. That makes sense to me. Well, first of all, I just want to say we're only five minutes into this conversation and you started that. I'm not sure if my story is interesting enough (laughs) and put me on a journey. Mm. That is I have so many questions. You said that your mom said back in the day, don't say where I'm from. And you were like, well, no one knows where this is. Is that a conversation that she still, does she still hold on to that? Yeah. She, she doesn't talk about her time in the Philippines as a very happy time. Mm. And she was there, I mean, you know, for 18, 19 years. Right. Right, Yeah. But she doesn't talk about that. She talks about how she and her friends used to go out into the ocean and swim over by the fishing boats Mm. and she almost drowned. And there's a lot of, um, I'm, I'm going to call it superstitious types of things that go on. Yeah. But again, it's an island. yeah. And so the stories really do get passed down like that. So, But she was swimming and she said that she almost drowned. And then she really felt like, and she was a child, she really felt like a mermaid mm. came up and helped her up. And when she got to the top, there was nobody there. Yeah. Yeah. So she really feels like it was an angel, to be honest with you. So she talks about that. She talks about how when she was growing up, she had two dresses and one pair of shoes. And every year she would get a corn husk doll and a pair of shoes. And that was it for the year. So when we got to the States, 
she just really felt how fortunate she was. Mm -hmm. There were three of us, me and my brother and sister. So they're half brothers and sisters. And our gifts at Christmas were, uh, it wasn't about what we got. It was how many Mm. we got. And it was ridiculous. I mean, it could have been like for a church sort of thing. There were so many gifts. And really, she was sort of overcompensating. Easter was the same thing. We mm-hmm. celebrated Easter till we were in our teens looking for baskets because she just... That's adorable. Yeah, it's so cute. Yeah. yeah. Well, your mom sounds like a wonderful woman. And like the fact that she did all that just to give you a better life and her a better life mm-hmm. is just so courageous. No, I would agree with you. And, you know, the, the sad thing, not the sad thing, I think, you know, looking at it now, I look at the fact that you know, she was doing all this stuff, and my dad was like, oh, that's just Pat. That's just what she does. But I think the psychology behind it was my mom all by herself. Yeah. Like, therapy wasn't a thing. You know, and talking yeah. to people wasn't a thing back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I, not as accepted, right? And, of course, insurance and things like that, it just really wasn't a, a mainstream thing the way it is. That was my mom's way of dealing with it, and she found a way. And she was very alone in that mm-hmm. yeah what was her name pat pat uh-huh. beautiful name. patricia yeah, yeah. patricia I, I i think about honestly yeah more of my mom and my dad too with that because although they did come together your parents are both they're both palestinian okay. yeah and my dad first came here got a job and then went back and got married overseas and my oh. mom came to america when she was 19 and although they had together my dad was always working so she always felt alone and that's a feeling that i don't think i'll ever understand but um it really is you're you're risking it all mm-hmm. for the chance of a better life. And you are. Yeah. You are. You know, I I think about the growing up that I did as a woman, mm-hmm. not even a woman of color, but a woman of yeah. that generation. You know, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, sexual harassment was a thing. Yeah. Because nobody identified it and there was victim blaming, like all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And you couldn't like speak forward and even today it's difficult so I can imagine and there is a yeah. culture now where people listen to victims and there's a me too movement. But back in the day that wasn't a thing. That wasn't a thing. Yeah, you were truly on your own. Yeah. And so, you know, these young these young women that are coming up, you know, I hope that they can have some sort of impact on society the way we did, whether or not it's appreciated or recognized, right? Mm. But you look at the generation before me and like my mom and like probably you're young, your grandmother, right? Tough as nails and brave Mm -hmm. and vulnerable and they were they were implements of change, Mm -hmm. you know, so breaking the cycle or whatever the case it is. That is, that's a strength that I hope that I never need, but I hope that I have. It's really interesting that you put that because there are times that I have a conversation with my mom or my grandma when she was with us is like, oh, they're so backwards. Oh my God, they're not, you know, but I I forget that they went through a whole different thing. And part of it is to protect yourself and that fear. And without them changing and, you know, kind of shifting the generational trauma. I wouldn't have this position and I wouldn't have these luxuries and this privilege. That's exactly it. You know, I think about the way my mom was raised and the way she talks, right? She could have been giving birth in the field. She was a housekeeper, but you had no time, no time to yourself. And like, what if she wanted to have a family? It's too bad. You got to raise the other Mm -hmm. person's kids first, right? I could have been that. And so, you know, I think about it, these... 18 and 19 year old kids who are my parents now altered my life in a way that 
it was really kind of by the grace of God. I I had nothing to do with it, and it was their choices, and they had no idea yeah. what they were doing either. And serendipity if they didn't meet then. Right, right. Yeah. And so because of that, like I'm I'm unmarried, but I've been told that I'm tough, and I think that I am very strong actually. But I wouldn't have an education. I also would never have a voice. I don't know if my mom could have voted. Yeah. You know, so I live in a place where I can vote. I also live in a place where I can protest mm-hmm. without the gorillas. And the military, you know, trying to stifle my voice as a human being, not even just as a woman. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I'm also in a place where if I were victimized, I would also be able to fight back. Mm -hmm. And I just think, what would my life have been like? Yeah. And you carry the strength of your mom and your ancestors with that because it moves, it pushes the needle forward. Yeah, we're very lucky that way, aren't we? As Liana mentioned, she's in her 50s and I am in my late 20s. We're both first-generation immigrants, and this conversation covers Liana's experience as a first-generation immigrant, one that transcends generations. Coming up next, we're gonna be talking about dating and the term exotic and coming into your own person. I'm 88.9 Story Zori. And I'm Milwaukee Films' Christopher Pollard. And we are the hosts of Cinebuds. Yeah, we are. And on Cinebuds, we talk about movies. Flicks. Moving pictures, they are referred to as also. Talkies. Talkies is good, (laughs) yeah. And you can listen to us every week. On Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Or you can listen to the entire podcast at radiomilwaukee.org slash podcast. Cinebuds is brought to you by Associated Bank and Eyes on the Lake, Eye Care and Eye Wear. So I have a question for you. Um, you know, you were born in the Philippines, but you probably, what I'm assuming is your earliest memories were in Iowa. Yeah. How do you identify? Yeah, that's a fair question. So I, I consider myself Asian American mm-hmm. and I feel like I can comfortably say that over my brother and sister, mm. who are half, right? Yeah. I've asked them, how how do you fill out forms? Yeah. Like, what do you say? And they said, it depends on what it's for. That's fair. That's fair. The fact that I felt like I lived two lives. So I was raised in Iowa, mm-hmm. the largest high school in that area, Davenport West. And I mean, I think our class was like 1,800 in my senior class. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there were always so many people to meet. I was you know, one of maybe a dozen non-white people. So like blacks and browns. So Asian, Hispanic, and black people made up like the dozen people that I knew there, right? But I identified with the white culture because my father was white and his extended family and all of that. But that's sort of how we were raised. You know, my mom, she would be saying one thing in my ear and my father would say something else. So my mom, when I was graduating from high school and getting ready to go to college, like we always knew I was college bound. We just didn't, like now there's so much assistance in college prep. There wasn't back then. You just decided and you applied and probably you'd get accepted if it were a regular college. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to go to college. I always loved school, that kind of thing. But my mom said, why do you want to go to college if you could just be pretty and learn how and to maintain a house. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so frustrating for me because I couldn't get her to understand 
He could leave me with five mm-hmm. kids and nothing. He could beat me and I would have nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said, no, no, no. She said she knows of a really nice doctor in California and he's in his 50s and he would like to meet. And I was it was so offensive to me as an American woman yeah. raised in America where it was just like, oh, no, that's not that's not the choice that I would like to make mm-hmm. for myself. And, you know, my father, he didn't intervene at that time. He spoke to me after. But yeah. my mom was very upset because, you know, why am I not worried about my own security? Mm-hmm. Because it worked for her. Yeah. And it worked out beautifully for her. And, you know, and again, I don't think I need to say I understand that I'm blessed by that, but it wasn't what I wanted. I always wanted to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And later my father talked to me and he said, look, and he's always raised me to be strong internally within myself. Mm-hmm. But he said, you could be anything in the entire world that you want to be, except for president or vice president of the United States. But he said, I promise you, that's not where the power structure is. So don't worry about it. But he said, it's only by virtue of the fact that you weren't born here. But you could do things that are even greater than that. Mm -hmm. And he always he always told me that. And he was always the one that taught me to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, just stop crying and get tough and. He put me in a sports, and so I played yeah. softball, and I competed. A, I was in, in pom-poms, and I competed in the orchestra, and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It sort of taught me that you, sometimes you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, mm-hmm. honestly, you need to because you're not the best one. Yeah. That's okay, And that's too. a hard thing to sometimes grip grip with. But, yeah. You know, I kind of relate to that a little bit because my mom is Middle Eastern, and, you know, she always says that your education is your backbone. But there was this idea, too. It's like, you got you have to get married. That's number one for right, sure. Right. And that is security. And same with my dad. Like, right. he'll make thoughts, which are prayers, and he'll be like, I hope God brings you a wonderful man to take care of you. And I'm like, I'm an independent woman. I feel like you should, you know, yeah. wish for health or other things. And yeah. it's always, it always goes back to that. So I completely understand that idea of that is what security is. And I know a lot of people also in my culture that go to university just to find a husband. Just to find a husband, right. Yeah, and it's just right. kind of like like a check mark. It's like, I have, an, I have a degree. Here right, it is. Right, right. This yeah. makes me more marketable, right? For sure, for yeah. sure. So that's, but have you ever, um, I'm just trying to get in your headspace when you were a young woman at that age, you know, 17, 18, going to school. Did you look at your mom differently? Was there judgment from that response? There was. Or, yeah. yeah. And this is going to make me cry. And I'm not proud of it. So my mom, she speaks English. You can understand what she's saying. And honestly, as an adult, you would listen to her today and be like, this is the most adorable thing Mm -hmm. I've ever seen. She's tiny. She's cute. She laughs at things that, you know, are kind of like a joke inside her head kind of thing. But, you know, growing up, I was always like, you know, because I wanted to belong, as most children do, so badly, I oftentimes wish that my mother was American. Mm. And so, you know, because the makeup in the magazines at that time were not for women of color. So they would say, Mm. put pink eyeshadow on. I'm sorry. I'm brown. It looks horrible on me. And, you know, put your, you know, put your eye makeup on a particular way. My eyes are whiter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, put, put, you know, put makeup on your nose a particular way. My nose Mm. is flat. Yeah. You know, those sorts of things. And when I would, you know, look at the magazines and look at my mom, who's beautiful, and I actually kind of always has been, um, 
And I never didn't think that. I just never thought I was. Right. Because the media was telling me that I wasn't. Mm. But, you know, again, as a woman or as a girl growing up in that, I mean, you've got so many of the social pressures. And then that thing that says you don't look right. Mm -hmm. You don't look right. Because if you did, then clothes would not be too long. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, you know, the Band-Aids would look right. Right. Yeah. I mean, things like that. You just don't look right. So you're just going to have to work it out. And, you know, fortunately, through the years, and again, it wasn't without a lot of feeling awful about myself. But, you know, I learned that, you know, if I were talented in something, you know, that would be pretty cool. But I didn't get there. (laughs) But in terms of wishing that, you know, my mother were different. Yeah, I do. Today, I wouldn't trade her in for the world. Mm. But I mean, back then, you know, I, I can't imagine... You know, as a child, as a kid, because kids are mean, and I, I hope that the things I said didn't resonate. Yeah, you're making as a me think about. So tough. Yeah, you're making me think about the mean things I've said to my mom and dad. Yeah, it, yeah it's so awful. And you know, the thing is, these are not things that you would ever want said to you. Yeah. I remember as a what kid, did you I say? would always say, like, I never want to be like you. Yes. <laughs> How heartbreaking! <laughs> yeah, is that, and now right? looking back at it. Yeah, that is a really messed up thing to say. And my mom took it. Yeah, she never complained about that. But yeah, I remember my, my that. My mom didn't beat me. Yeah. You know what she did, though? My mom, there were times, though, when you just went too far. Okay. My mom always was the silent treatment, which was always the oh, scariest really? thing. My like, mom was all about the fly swatter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> For those yeah. of you out there, do not get your mom so mad that she pulls out the fly swatter because you hear it whip. That's it. <laughs> and, and it You've gone too mad. far. You're like, oh, that was the trigger. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But by yeah. that point, I mean, truly you deserved it. <laughs> yeah. But I think that was something that I've always kind of struggled with, too, is like I'm very much alike my mom to the point where it would annoy me. And I, I, I don't know if it was because I wanted to be an individual or I saw things. But she's an, she's a great woman. But I remember that was a thing as a young woman. It's like, I don't want to be like her. And right. I, it might have been because me trying to assimilate to something else. Because I've always wanted to be like Mary-Kate and Ashley. And I don't look like Mary-Kate and Ashley at all. Isn't that funny? You said that it took a lot long years for you to like be okay with who you are and who your mom is. What was that transition like for you? When was that? Um, I would say probably high school. I mean, the truth of the matter is I was popular, right? Yeah. But I was I can a, see that. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Well, Mom, so, and volleyball and softball. So there was the popular and then there's the elite. Every okay. school has it, right? So I was never part of the elite. So where I was wasn't good enough for mm-hmm. me. And it wasn't like I was a climber because I would never compromise. I would never be a mean girl. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't have it. In me because I know how it feels. But you were you were a social butterfly in a sense. I was. Okay. I was. I would talk to anybody. So I I was popular, but at the time I didn't know it. Okay. It wasn't until much later. But in high school, I started to realize that you know I I thought that I never had a boyfriend in elementary school mm-hmm. like so many people do because I didn't look right. Yeah. It was because and it was only because I didn't look right. I never once focused on. What I actually brought to the table. Yeah. Like, I think I'm hilarious. And I don't know if I am or yeah. not, but I think I am. But in high school, it, it just, it, I started to learn because boys are 
<clears throat> gross yeah. sometimes. But I started to realize <laughs> that, you know, they kind of think this is a little exotic. Now, what does yeah. exotic mean? Mm. But then you grow up and you probably had this too where you know, like the fetish guys. Oh, for sure. So yeah. gross. I've never dated a Middle Eastern Arab woman. I've never dated an Asian woman. Oh, God. You know, Filipino women are the best in the world. And, you know, they're, you know, I hear that they're great. At, come on. Yeah. Stop yourself. And, you know, at that time it was interesting and I didn't realize how offensive it was. Because right? you, there's a part of you that it likes feels like a compliment, wanted. right? Yeah. You're like, oh, okay, I'm doing something right. And then with retrospect, right. you're like, oh, okay, I'm catering to this type yeah, of Yeah, yeah, you're gross. Mm. And you're also not yeah. trying to figure out who I am. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the fetish guys. But in, then in college, you know, you start to come into your own and then realize that you actually have a lot of say in who you choose to be with and be mm. around. And have as friends, you start to sort of realize that I, I don't know when my standards or the strength in myself started to be where I realized I had a choice in our interaction and our yeah. relationship too. That's a, that's Did you have that? So my upbringing is a little bit different because I went to an Islamic school when I was really young until sixth grade. And then was I went, it boys and girls? Boys and girls, okay. yes. But um, I never cared about dating or anything like that. I was just, It wasn't in my mind at all. Sure. But um, I went then overseas for six years. So I lived in Palestine for six mm. years. So when I was becoming kind of an adult, the transition period, coming of age, it was overseas in Palestine until 10th grade. So my last two years of high school, I went back to America. And that's when I kind of experienced that culture shock. Because mm -hmm. then I really felt like I was really different. Because you're surrounded by people who look like you or talk like you. And I, I think my, the difference that I went through is, which is actually kind of crazy to think about because I, I'm, a very, I'm a storyteller. I love speaking. Sure. But I, I was kind of silent for a very, very long time. Really? I didn't like speaking. I didn't like talking to people. I was kind of scared to like share my voice and because... my opinions. Because I felt like no one understood me. Did you, okay, so did you feel like you're not Palestinian enough and you're not yeah. American enough? Overseas or, or even till this day, I feel like I'm too American or too uh -huh. westernized. And then when I'm with my Western peers or my American peers, I feel like I'm too brown. And I, I don't know where I fit in with that. It's, I hear yeah. you. And, you know, I, I, I as I get older... I realize that do I need to fit in? Mm. You know, I I'm mean, not like, there yet. Yeah, yeah. It, it's hard it's though because you know you're with a group and they. It's almost like a culture that you just don't quite fit into. Yeah, you know, yeah. and with the American culture, I I do fit into it, but I do feel different because I'm not going to talk about the same things. Yeah. I don't you, know. People knew you were Asian American, but did they think you were like maybe Japanese or Korean? Like, did they know what Filipino was or would you get kind no, of No, they didn't know what Filipino was. Yeah. No, it was almost the term is, you know, off the boat. OK. OK. So like you came here from another country. Yeah. And that was a term they loosely used. But no, no, they didn't know. Yeah. They'd be like, what are you? And then there's also not trying to learn it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this happened to you. So my name is actually pronounced Liana. Okay. Liana, because my yeah. mom met this woman from Hawaii who was very, very kind to her. And her name was Liana. Then you come to the States and it became Liana. Liana. And that's fine. It's a fine name, but it's not my name. Yeah. And now I even introduced myself. So I lost that as Liana, you know, and if somebody, you know, calls me Liana, I'm like, oh. It feels warm. Yeah, nothing has turned I, me on more, right? No, <laughs> I 
actually thought it's right. friend once is like, what's your biggest kink? And I was like, oh, someone pronouncing my pronouncing name Pronouncing my name. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. They're not even trying. Or if you have somebody from another country whose name is hard to pronounce, then they're not, they're going to change it. Yeah. You know, that's but so frustrating. But that's not for every name because Timothy Chalamet is a French name and everyone can say that. Like, I feel like there's names right. from certain parts of the world that people try harder to pronounce. I know. Yeah. I know. Because how do you pronounce your name? Salam. Salam. Yeah. See, we and call you Salam. Salam, yeah. And, and even, that's how you introduce yeah, yourself, right? Sometimes I do that. Salam. Just because it just, it's, for me, I think about it as like, oh, I don't want to deal with the hassle of it uh-huh. all. Like, it's just a name. But when yeah. you actually think about it, it's like, this is my identity. I do want to talk a little bit about your connection with your culture. Sure. Um, we did talk a little bit about how in some spaces you feel like you're in that middle ground yep. of not fitting in on both sides. Right. How do you stay connected to your identity and culture as an Asian American? I mean, honestly, the only way that I do that is through my mother. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't have, I, I, I didn't connect very strongly with the small Asian culture in Davenport, Iowa. Yeah. My mom did, but now you know, all of the children are like me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're all Asian Americans and we've gone to live these American lives. My mom's generation, they're all sort of dying off, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But it really is through the food. Yeah. It's through my brother and sister when we talk about things, like memories that we have. So my mom, she would do Filipino. The Philippine language is Tagalog. And there's another dialect of it called Bisaya. And again, with the islands, it's just always going to be a little bit different. But so Tagalog and Bisayan, which are same but different. So I envision it to be sort of like uh, Spanish in Spain and Spanish in Mexico, okay, right? Gotcha. So mom would say things in Tagalog and American. So she would, if she was really upset, she would do it. So she would say, Napaka dummy. You know, there's a lot of the aka sound. Or, um, and we, you know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Napaka dummy. Or if you didn't eat all the food on your plate, mm-hmm. it would be like, sayang nalang. And it just means, what a pity. Aww. Oh, sayang nalang. But I mean, connecting to the culture, it, it was primarily through food. And, you know, when yeah. we say things the way my mom says them, sadly, and this is, what was the name of that play? Heart? Heart Sellers. Heart Sellers. At the very end, I cried when she said, you know, I, I'll go back and I won't be the same. Mm. And then what happens when I'm gone? My children won't have this. And that makes me so sad Yeah, because the language will be gone Yeah, with me. And then my nieces, you know, they always love when my mom makes pancit, which is a noodle dish, and uh, lumpia, yeah. which are like the crispy egg rolls. They're basically spring rolls, but, and they only know it one way, the way yeah. my mom made it. Mom made it with me- uh, hamburger and potatoes in there because yeah. those are the ingredients she had on hand. And the girls are like, oh, I hope grandma. And I'm like, okay, let's just sit down right now. You need to learn this. That's what I was going to say. Do you then in your own personal life then try to learn things that your mom does just so you can hold on to it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't have children. Right. So my sister is the only one of the three of us that have kids. And the girls love it. And I think that they will learn it. But, you know, again, once they're gone... Yeah, I mean, it, it saddens me that like this melting pot that we have in the United States, like with you, like a lot will be gone. For sure. And if it's it's on us to preserve that history. Yeah. I think about that constantly because yeah. um, I'm even I'm sensing that I'm losing my Arabic language because I don't use it enough. There's moments that like I'll have like a brain freeze. And I'm like, what is that word again? It's on the tip of my tongue that I need to practice this. Mm-hmm. 
but it's a lot harder now to talk in Arabic, which I, it really does sadden me because I, I had, I was really good at it. But my father doesn't speak a lot. He's a very calm presence, doesn't share about his history and his past. And I think about just, I don't know, just like what, what like I don't, I don't want him to go away and pass away and not know anything about him. And not know anything about his culture and his history. You know, so, my mom has shared stories yeah. about her. And it's like when she tells me I'm honored. Yeah. Because she needs to be able to pass that down. Yeah. But it hurts me. Does it? Yeah. It like hurts my heart to know that. The pain. This person that I would protect mm-hmm. has actually gone through this. And again, it's really not giving her credit mm-hmm. for what she did do. But she'll say it and she'll cry. And it's so have you have you seen like the Joy Luck Club? I've heard of it. Yeah, okay. I've seen it though. Yeah, okay, so I'm cool. going to put that on your list okay, of things great. to watch. But it really has to do with the first generation culture clash that you live with. You know, it's like I have to function in this world where possibly I might have to do it myself versus your mother trying to steer you in a way yeah. that she grew up because her life was I don't want to say it was infinitely more difficult, but it does seem like but, it was. <laughs> and they're trying to protect you because that's all they know. Yeah. And to like you're for at least for me, and my dad plays more of a role, but he doesn't even like me saying I'm Palestinian on air. He gets no. scared. Yeah. He's because always like, I don't want people to like associate you with that because you know there's the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict and such. And he's like, I just don't want you not to get the job and stuff. Or he will, uh, my name is Salam Mahmoud Fadayed. My middle name is my dad's name. And he begged me not to yet include his name with my name. Just because, again, it's like a Middle Eastern name. So I feel like my dad does things to protect us. But he's assimilating. Because I feel like there's fear of the world. Because he's dealt with that backlash Mm -hmm. as a brown man. Mm -hmm. So I have this role of being like, no, the world is changing. And my perspective is kind of like you a bit more like face with it. It's like, no, this is who I am. And I'm not going to let anyone tell me otherwise. But we can do that now. Yeah, exactly. Because Because we have that privilege because of what they gave us. But then also you're holding on to your roots and ties. So it's our responsibility as first generations to keep Mm -hmm. that going. What do you love most about your identity? Um, Now that I feel unique that I do not feel like I blend as much as I, and you know me, I'm like, Oh, I don't know if I want to get on the radio because yeah. I, I might not be interesting. Like this kind of thing. I never truly feel like I'm that boring. No, not at all. Yeah. yeah. How dare you say that? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, you know that I, that I feel the uniqueness within me. I look at my mom and I can truly say that she is my hero. I love that. Truly can say that. Pat, we love her. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Pat. Isn't that funny, though? Like, us being unique, that was something that we hated when we were younger, but now it's our superpower. Oh, isn't that crazy? Yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. What is, what's your mom's favorite song? I kind of want to dedicate a song to her. Oh, that's so yeah. sweet. Or a song that reminds you of your mom. Oh, she's a big Elvis Presley fan. <laughs> Huge Elvis Presley. I um, love that. Yeah, maybe like, Are You Lonesome Tonight? Or like okay. a nice I'll little tradition one. i some songs on that, too. Yeah. That'd be nice. Oh, that's so that. sweet. Are you lonesome tonight? Do you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your memory stray? 
Thank you for listening to this in-depth interview with Liana, who kindly opened up about her upbringing. And join us next week as the second season of Be Seen is going to be taking over Uniquely Milwaukee, hosted by Director of Digital Content Nate Imig, documenting Wisconsin LGBTQ history. And if you want to do some refreshing, the first season of Be Seen is all over RadioMilwaukee.org or wherever you find your podcasts. This is your host, Salam Fathayed. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer, Kiri Salinas, our audio production manager, Brett Krasgowski is our web editor. Thank you to our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics and our wonderful logo is made by Aaron Vigata. Our community engagement coordinator is Mallory Wallace and Dan Reiner handles our social media accounts. And a big, big thank you to our city loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week for the next episode of Uniquely Milwaukee.